0: Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Radio Okwap Talk. This is Rachna. Let's start with a few questions. What is wrong with how we produce and buy clothes? What is right with it? Can we change the system? Where do artisans fit into this mix? In this episode I talk with Gavita Parma, founder and creative director of IOU Project. A designer, activist, a revolutionary thinker and doer, Kavita has been addressing these questions for some time. After years working in the fashion industry, Kavita saw the need to do things differently. She pioneered the hashtag WhoMadeMyClothes, which has become the battle cry for a fashion revolution. Now she's advocating a design approach that forges and values relationships between artisans and buyers. It hasn't been an easy road convincing big fashion or even consumers to follow along. But Kavita is at heart an optimist, and she doesn't take no for an answer. This is a woman with a vision, and it's worth hearing what she has to say. Let's head over to Madrid and chat with Kavita in her studio. Sabaiti, Kavita, it's really a pleasure to have you here joining us. Um, I gave our listeners a quick introduction of your trailblazing work, so let's get started and hear directly from you. Um, how are you today? Good.
1: Hi, very well, thank you. Madrid's uh, perfect Madrid weather, so I cannot complain. Um, um, and it's kind of nice to be home. I've traveled a lot, and this crazy situation has made me not be able to travel for the last four to five months. I'm covering the beauty of my little my city, so it's a perfect day in Madrid, so thank you.
0: Oh, wonderful. Well, um, let's get started with the IOU project. Um, can you give me a quick elevator pitch about the project and uh, where it's at today.
1: Sure, and I'm going to give you a little thing before I say the elevator pitch. It's funny when I did we did the IU project and I won a few awards and I was put in front of and uh, lots of investors, I was told that I was supposed to give an elevator pitch and I refused to do it because I said the world's biggest problems need a lot, a long term attention and long term solution. But here it comes. Um, so we, <laughs> I'm so
0: sorry.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just a joke. I, it's, it's, uh, you know, things that we, we talk about in our society, uh, about the elevator pitch is for me a perfect example of how people decide to invest in things that, You know, they have to be so easy and so short. And yeah, I know that there's a logic behind it. I think clarity is from the succinctness of things. But the truth also is there's there's lots of problems that are so complex that we need to take a moment, uh, try and first spend some time understanding them, and then also happily admit to the fact that we don't know the answer and be brave enough and willing enough to walk down towards the light. Problems that we've had in our society for the last hundred years in the industrial age is trying to do things... in. In a very industrial manner, and it's all about profit, and it's all about Mm -hmm. quick wins. And I think we're coming into a new era where we might have to think differently, Uh, or at least we've been shown by nature that we should think differently. Uh, But yeah, my 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 little pitch about IOU. Let me re-ask the question. Um,
0: Can you give me a long stairway bamboo ladder pitch (laughs) about the IOU project?
1: I'll just tell you a little, little my love story about the IU project, which is really what it is. Mm-hmm. It's a love story because um, I, the IU project basically was an exercise for me, someone who's been lucky enough to do what I'd love um, in my life, and it happened to me as a pure, sheer accident um, to realize that what I loved was under threat, and that the fashion industry was not what I had signed up for, but it wasn't the problem wasn 't the people the problem was the system, and that could we the people who loved what we did, reinvent a new system. And specifically in this moment in time where technology is so empowering and, and it's growing so quickly, I also wanted to make sure that this technology was in the hands of everybody. That was just not about making apps for the millennials, but it was about leaving no one behind. So how could we use the power of this technology for the ones who were really Uh, no one had cared about, which was uh, the artisans, the people who were still doing things in the age-old manner that they had learned to do from their ancestors many times, not even understanding why sometimes they did the things in the same way, but continuing to do it as a ritual because they knew there um, there was some wisdom and knowledge that was there, and it was their job to continue doing it, even when it was hard to do. So the IU project is about that. We try to use technology to give traceability and transparency for both the artisan to give them the authorship for their work and right place at the table and for the consumer so that they could actually see the people behind the product to understand that when you bought something it was someone's work it was a love it was a skill that you were buying not just a brand not just a name to price tag so that's what we set out to do I know it's a big (laughs) it was a big ambitious task
0: absolutely I mean it's It's ambitious, but like you said, it needs to be done. Kavita, let's go back a few years. The first iteration of the IOU project launched in 2011, I believe, as a traceability and accountability platform for the entire fashion industry. The project didn't take off as you had hoped, so you took matters into your own hands and set out to prove your point. Can you walk us through the events that led up to the first launch of IOU and its evolution to the current form? So when I, we
1: started IOU, my husband works in, uh, comes from the world of machine learning AI, which is, you know, I understand nothing of it. I'm not, I'm a craft and, you know. Art and craft girl but uh, technology fascinates me and it's always the idea of how human beings we've invented things over time has always fascinated me so having that next to me I could see how quickly technology was developing changing and making huge uh, shifts in many industries whereas I felt that in our industry it hadn't done much everyone was very excited about Uh, e-commerce and they thought that was a big leap but when you think about it Sears catalog 200 years ago was doing exactly what the e-commerce was doing which was you had a picture and you ordered and then the stuff came to you maybe back in Sears catalog was even better because you waited for it and there was a sense of okay a commitment to what you bought but now it's actually gotten worse so for me it wasn't a big advancement I felt like technology really hadn't disrupted our industry for the betterment of the people within the industry Um, so our idea with i you was to create a traceability platform that would actually show every single person within the supply chain from the person who actually grew the cotton, wove the cotton or whatever the raw material was, cut, sew, make, finish, sold, as well as bought. Because I've always believed that uh, it is really fundamental if we want real sustainability that we all have to be able to hold each other accountable and be as honest and transparent as possible because... This is not a problem created by a bunch of brands or a bunch of, you know, corporations, as we like to say, and it's all their fault. It's actually all our fault. We all participate in it.
0: Gabita, I read that you approach design as an ecosystem, and I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I feel that we really need to rethink not only what we make, but how we make it. And to really embrace the relationships that go into creating something from start to finish. Can you share your thoughts on what a sustainable design ecosystem looks like?
1: We as designers have a little bit more power than we think we do because instead of designing a product, I think it's time in which we live, we need to design the system. Um, And once you have a good system, then it would be logical the next step of that, a good product could come out of it. We've, for the last 100 years, because of the Industrial Revolution, as designers, we've become very focused on just the superficiality of our work, which is to design to make it look good. So it's all about that. But to me, it's also designing how it's made, to designing uh, the relationships that are within the system that are really important. So yes, I'd have to agree with you. I think you've said that really well.
0: Forging and respecting relationships is one of the cornerstones of your approach to design and making clothes. You do this by providing a unique ID for each garment that shows who made the piece and where it was made. And you encourage buyers to send in photos of themselves wearing what they bought to complete the story, as you say. Kavita, why is the relationship between maker and buyer so critical?
1: Well, for us, when we started IOU, one of the things that we were very conscious of that we did not want to fall into the trap of, for lack of a better word, I'm going to use something horrible, uh, but very um, honest, called poverty porn. Uh, we didn't want to sell you this idea, which has done a lot of You know, bad in the world, I believe, which is that the first world has to go somehow now, save the third world from its own problems, um, which is such double speak, because when you think about it, we are in the first world have caused most of those problems. And then, of course, we can go back into colonialism, etc. So for us, it was really important that we treated the relationship between the artisans and the people who bought the product as an equal relationship, because that was the only way we felt that if a sense of responsibility was built both ways towards each other, we would be then going into this new paradigm of really not considering sustainability as something where either the first world or the wealthy nations or a big brand is going to give to us. There'll be something we would all have to build together. We also felt, at least I that had traveled a lot in the Far East, have come across repeatedly projects where they have been sort of trained to f- show their problems or sort of talk about their problems because they see this as a way to get money for poor me uh, from the first world. It's not an honest conversation. It's about help me because I don't have food, help me because I'm in such trouble. So it's sort of an unequal relationship. And I many times realized, speaking with the artisans, that they themselves told me that they were unable to have an honest conversation because this was the quickest way to get results. This was the quickest way to get money, whether it was a World Bank funding, aid to artisans, any of these things, projects. The sorrier your story was, the easier it was for you to get funding. The more this uh, quote-unquote social impact, according to their standards, you could show, the more you would be able to get, you know, access to funding. Which, of course, then we saw after the year 2008, 2009, when the whole crisis came, you know, if evaporated really quickly so for me that was not a sustainable relationship that was not sustainable it was very parasitic in nature both ways so we we felt like it was a joy for me it was a real I felt really um blessed that I could work with these incredible artisans for me you know it wasn't something they would do I was doing a favor to them quite the reverse I was doing a favor to me many ways sharing their craft with me and so I felt I had to build that same relationship with the final consumer. So that's why it was such, so important to us that not only was it the photo of the artisan and the, you know, who he was, et cetera. It wasn't, we were not trying to sell how you should help this person. It was more about celebrating who this person was and then celebrating the relationship you had with them. I can tell you quickly, very two very beautiful things that happened very quickly early on with IOU. We had artisans who were um, ab- about the second shipment of uh, we've shipped always a fabric by container and sh- seed to have the minimum impact possible and right after the first shipment as a second shipment was supposed to get on board we saw there was a lot of delay over two weeks I got concerned that area is very prone to cyclones called them up immediately and asked them if there was trouble going on in terms of that and they said no it's the artisans who are weaving slower because they're so proud to see their face on the website they want their work to be perfect. Oh, now that's something wonderful. I'd never thought of, because it's, it's about pride, right? I'd never th- right. I'd never figure that in my head, had never you know come around that. So quality control done by the artisan themselves, because of the pride they felt, because they got authorship, that was magical. The other thing that happened was again, the first six months, we had so many people reaching out to us, asking us more information about their artisan if wanting to connect. Many of them were traveling to India and say, "Can we go see our artisan?" Of course, I had to remind them that India is as big as Europe, and if you're going to Norway, it's not quite easy to go visit your artisan in Alicante, Spain. But a couple of them were going near Madras, and made the effort to take a 200 to 300 kilometer drive into the to go and meet with their artisans, take pictures. I mean, that to me was a huge gift. And that to me was the relationship that we were hoping to foster. So there you come to why it was for us so important to build the prosperity chain with both sides end to end and to unite those two sides to make them understand why both sides are important and why it's important that both act knowing who they're acting towards.
0: Right. And I mean, you know, it's a really honest connection, I feel like, that you're promoting, which is what makes it really beautiful. And it also puts the value through a different lens. You know, it's not market value. It's a relationship value. It's a sustainability value.
1: Absolutely. And also you must, I mean, there's so much of that, you know, artisans being showed on the website uh, for a lot of people. And the other side, also, there's a lot of the selfie culture of take a picture with your product. So it, that it's nothing new in terms of the way it's, you know, where we are used to that. But for me, the newness of this was the conversation between the artisan and the final consumer. To me, it was really important that they understood how symbiotic the relationship was. I, I think it's really important that the artisans, wherever they are, whether in the first world or the third world are aware of what they do and what they build has an impact, not only in their near environment, but also the people who use them and vice versa. And I think that's the, disconnect that we have on the planet right now, that we are absolutely disconnected with our supply chains, with where we consume things from. We uh, expect everything to come to us with a label that tells us what to do. And I think that's where I'm hoping that this dialogue, which is sustainability to me, would have been pushed a bit by us.
0: And the dialogue's also interesting based on what you said earlier, which is that, you know, overproduce to create a sense of kind of abundance. We tend to treat things a little bit more carelessly and we consume more frivolously. Whereas I think that when you have a dialogue like this and you have that relationship that's integral to the transaction, um, you, you know, you value it more. Without doubt, one
1: of my biggest concerns also is, you know, you right now see in the name of sustainability, a huge push towards renting. That seems to be the big investment which most big uh, VCs in the fashion uh, tech area are doing, which is about people, uh, brands and all kinds of, you know, renting your clothes to people. And that for $40, you can get two outfits for a month or things like that, which I think is, I am so against that that i think that's again so contra natura you know it's not what we should be doing on this planet we are not here on rent this belongs to us every little bit of this belongs to us and we've got to treat it like it's ours we've got to respect it like it's ours care for it like it's ours and that extends to everything that we we deal with on a daily basis whether it's the house you live in uh the bicycle you're picking from the street or the clothes you have on your back. So I think this whole attitude of throw away uh, comes very much from, you know, there's a part of not owning, which is wonderful Buddhist. And, you know, nothing belongs to you. And and that's a wonderful idea, but nothing belongs to you actually is, quite much that everything belongs to you, that you're part of everything. And we forget that part. So we're kind of, you know, convincing people that 40 bucks, you can have new things all the time. Why would they care about taking care of it? Why would they even develop a relationship with something where, where it already has, you know, a, a, they're, they're looking for new things to, to be wearing next week. Um, and to me, that's why it's really important to build these relationships.
0: Uh, okay, let's move on to the Madras check um, I've always been very fond of this weave as well, but I think for you, it has a very soulful connection. Um, can you tell me a little more? Uh, it's funny <laughs> to
1: be quite honest. I'm addicted to Madras and I have to admit it. I always <laughs> said to everyone, I have a Madras addiction. So my father was, um, you know, was an Air Force officer and we traveled a lot. And at some point I'm assuming, and I was a little girl, like not, going to quite tell you when exactly because i don't remember but i remember in Sundays, he would my father was very much about dressing well and he was air force officer so it was really like serious he'd wear his clothes quite seriously there was a uh, a person who'd come to our house to polish his buttons and his shoes so clothing was treated in a very you know very respectful manner especially the uniforms and then even afterwards he was quite a dashing you know very Particular about what he wore, but Sundays he would wear a lungi, and it would just as a little girl it was something you know, I watch my father wear what I thought was a skirt. Uh, it was fascinating. It was so different <laughs> from anything else around <laughs> that I was fascinated. He had a huge collection of them. He had a lot of them, and and I was just fascinated by this, you know, as as much as I with my mother's saris. And of course, I've grown up and I've forgot about all of this. And uh, one of these days, I, my mother would use the old lungies to do different things out of them. Always, there's always lungies around the house, so it's always sort of part of my, you know, uh, aesthetic in the back of my head. And then when I started on the IOU project, I went back to it really because every time I've done an artisan-based project, I've always told, "Oh, how beautiful, how lovely," but you know, "Oh, how." elite. It's only meant for the very little, very few, because, you know, you can't make a lot of this. It's not possibly mass produced or um, it's too expensive. And to me, the lungi, the, the wonderful lungi had those two virtues that was perfect for the answer to what I was always criticised about, where it can't be mass produced, lungis are mass produced, and they are for the masses, and they are really well priced. Um, you know, anybody normally in India, as you know, most people wear a lungi. Are, are wealthy people don't wear lungis? It's the, it's the not so wealthy. It's the poor people in the street who do everyday jobs, who lift your burdens. at the ones who wear the lungi. So for me, it's this humble fabric um, held something really powerful. This idea of uh, diversity. This idea idea of that you could still, and of course, the Lungi, don't forget, also has traveled. If you go to all of Southeast Asia, there's different versions of it. It came from, you know, the old Madras kingdom, has also traveled to Africa. So there is this entire connection of trade way before the colonialists arrived. That also is really beautiful for me in the Lungi. So yes, I'm definitely, and I have to admit, after 12 years of working with this fabric, I'm still, addicted to it. I still cannot stop myself buying more and more. And I still have yet to find one that I hate.
0: Well, I'll tell you, looking through, scrolling through the IOU website, I was smitten. And um, and I definitely wanted to buy everything too. I mean, I think you, the way you told the stories and the photography was absolutely captivating. So. Thank you. So- <laughs> and
1: you know, you know what's amazing about this also, Russia, is that the older they get, the be- more beautiful they are. To me, the oldest ones are the ones I've had for over 15 years. They are sun washed and they're gorgeous. And they're, um, there's something about this fabric that has me, uh, you know, there's this something, yeah, like you said, spiritually. And don't forget, when Gandhi started the movement, one of the first cooperatives that was built based on his ideas was in South India, the Coptics. So in 1927, I believe. So that's another wonderful connection.
0: But what is something you are absolutely convinced of that no one else seems to believe? You're going to laugh about this. So <laughs> I'm convinced that
1: uh, <laughs> that we are all going to uh, be making our own clothes in some way, very different than the way we buy clothes. Really? Today. I think this whole idea. Oh my idea god, that's of, really frightening yeah, to me. I think,
0: because <laughs> I, don't um, know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know the first thing about it. <laughs>
1: No, but I mean, I don't mean that you literally have to learn how to sew each one of us. But it's just like if you look at the way we look at food today, um, you know, we went through a time where most people uh, did not, you know, the last 20, 30, 40 years, just as women, you know, and and children, we were learning how to cook was not part of our education. Um, So what did that do? That disconnected us from our eating habits and understanding what food is. And we went into this whole fast food revolution. A lot of us grew up eating food that was just, you know, bought outside, no understanding of nutrition. Um, And now we're paying a very high price. And there's a real movement going back towards, you know, making agriculture as well as cooking part of education and children, very young children. And I think that has to happen and that will happen with clothing as well. Um, Why do I think so? I think the system in which we are currently is very inefficient. We have to make a lot of product uh, to put it out there in front of a spoiled uh, client base. That's who we are. We like to go out there and just buy, and we want to have a huge array of things to choose from. Um, and, And for that to happen, we have to overproduce. As uh, globally and to make sure it's at the right price and to make sure that we've got all this big so-called variety in front of us, uh, easily accessible, whether it's online, whether it's at shops, and which uh, actually creates a huge amount of um, throwaway excess. And it's actually terrible for the environment to the point that today, you know, there's a big discussion whether fashion industry is number two or number four of the worst pollutants on the planet, which is crazy when you think about it. Most people don't understand it. Everyone thinks it's the big, you know, oil companies, or it's some other big, you know, big corporations. No one thinks that actual clothing on your back is doing more harm to the environment than most things. So I think that is going to change. I think there's going to be soon enough with technology a time where we will actually create our clothing as desired. It will not be made before. And I'm hoping for that day to come and I'm working towards that day to come. And whether we decide to go do that with an artisan or whether we go decide to do that with a designer, which materials do we use? Each one will have that choice. And it will be in a very short period of time. Maybe we would have to wait two to three to six weeks, no more. Depending on the product we buy, but I think that's where it's going to be, and it makes more sense to me. And the only things that we can probably buy right off would be vintage stuff, which, as you can see, is growing as well. So I'm convinced that's going to happen. And when I repeat it over and over again, a lot of people look at me as if I'm smoking something. They'd like to know. Well, what you know, it is. it's
0: funny you say that because as you're talking, I thought about in my lifetime. And, you know, I'm not, like, Mm -hmm. I'm almost ancient, but not really ancient, but in my lifetime, (laughs) Um, we, like, I was born and raised in Thailand and um, studied Mm -hmm. in India. And we made, we had all our clothes made, you know, ready-made, quote-unquote, ready-made clothes didn't hit the market until really, like, the 80s here. So there's like significant parts of the world where you, you actually had to go to a, you had to, well, first you go to the market, you pick your cloth, you know, you buy the cloth, you go to the tailor, you buy the buttons, you discuss, they measure you, and that's where your clothes were made. I mean, there was no, even our shoes were made like that.
1: Right, and you didn't have to be—you um, didn't have to be a billionaire. No, to not to at all.
0: In fact, it was—you um, know—you just kind of—it was kind of very matter of fact, um, and it, exactly. it allowed for a little bit of a creativity. It um, mm-hmm. allowed for affordability, and it actually allowed a lot of people to be in business. You know that in the in in that time now, when you look at it, you know there's not as many. Tailors and cobblers on the streets of Bangkok anymore. You know, the, you go to H and M or Zara, what have you. So, Kavita, this brings me to the question of messaging and communication. How do we effectively communicate the need for change? You know, colonialism's legacy comes up in brand messaging often. In fact, um, the IOU website refers to this by invoking Gandhi's Khadi movement and the, provides the backstory of the Madras Czech, for example. Why is it important to examine the inequitable and discriminatory history of textile production, in your opinion? Does focusing on history detract from the conversation of the current moment? And do you feel each generation understands history in the same way? You know, I don't really
1: see a lot of difference between different generations, even though we are espoused that over and over again, that the boom is a very different from the Gen X or the other millennials. I mean, if you look at what's happening right now in terms of organic and natural dye and tie dye and all that's coming back. If you look back to the sixties, um, that was there. I mean, you know, the, the hippie movement was based and very much the fashion was based on that. I think human history is quite cyclical in many ways. And, uh, you know, I'll go back to my Hindu, you know, some of what that stays in my brain, it's just us trying to figure out uh, the cycle and breaking up from the cycle, going to the next level of the cycle. So, you know, I you know, I look back on what's happening right now, and it's really important that we look back at history, we understand the inequities and where they came from, we denounce them, but it's also really important to move up from them. To me, I don't want to be stuck in the circle of denouncement. I just don't want to talk about how bad they were, how horrible they were, because in that becomes that takes over the conversation and then all we want to do is take off statues of you know Christopher Cologne which I'm not going to tell you Columbus was you know the paragon of virtue but you know each human being did what they did in that moment of time when they were living um, so we can look back and we can learn from the good things and we can just, you know very well Enunciate the bad and then move on and to say, what time do I live in? What tools do I have? And what's the direction I want to go to? Because otherwise, if we, if we turn history into our war of cur- our current war, I think we're never going to go to the next level. we never go to the next cycle. Um, we will make the same mistakes. We've done that. History's taught us that. Human beings are the animal that trips over the sto- same stone over and over again. Um, look at what Gandhi, if you l- read Gandhi, if you look at the um, Indian you know, movement, freedom movement, there is so much that we could learn from it. Uh, but in, in India, my, in my, I myself have found many people today denouncing Gandhi because he apparently gave up you know, uh, Pakistan. So it's like as if we want every, all of our heroes to be perfect. And if they're not perfect, we destroy them. And we're not even willing to take the 10% or the 50% or the 80% good in what they said. I'm focused on the good. I'm not interested to have a perfect hero, a perfect moment of history that I could say I can hold on to this as a new god. To me, I understand the imperfectness of our world, of ourselves, of our ancestors. But I also know that there was a lot of wisdom there that we might have left behind. And we should go back, look at history. I think history is fundamental to every child to understand and read, and not only just the history we've been reading, which is mostly focused on European history, but you know, culture, our culture, India, Asia, um, even North American, You know, I'm talking about ancient cultures that we don't know nothing about, but there's lots there, but no one's taught anything about the tribal cultures. I think there's a lot to be learned, but at the same time, we are where we are. We have the tools that we have. How can we shift our compass and go in the right direction without just sitting here and fighting with each other about whose statue we would break. I'm not going to tell you that there are some people whose statues we should definitely not take down. I'm the first one to say that. Because it's true, whoever we put on the statue stands for something. And that's who we, what we celebrate. But at the same time, I do believe as humanity, we need to get out of this cycle to move to the next one. And we also have to be very aware that we ourselves will make the same that's, mistake.
0: I completely agree with you, Kavita. Messaging and context is so important, particularly when we're asking folks to consider their behavior and more significantly to change their behavior. I felt the IOU Project's messaging draws in history and provides context that is clear and positive, and it really resonates, um, at least for me, and I imagine for a lot of others as well. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Because it's, you know, we
1: are living a time in it, and there's so much inequality and there's so much horrible things happening. I mean, the Black Lives Movement, I have friends and that, and it, it burns my blood when I get up in the morning and see another death, another, and just, you just get sucked into that horribleness and, and, you know, you have to fight. We have to get up in the morning and we have to fight that inequality and injustice, but we have to also find uh, the love, the positiveness in ourselves to make sure we build our revolution on love and not on hate.
0: So, Kavita, yeah. what keeps you awake at night?
1: <laughs> <laughs> My children. I knew you
0: were going to say that because <laughs> I have children too. I have, but you know, I have um,
1: teenage boys, and um, and of course, you know, when you when they were younger, you were just like, oh my god, you know, barely sleep, and you worry about them, and all the little things of life that sort of you know uh, that take up so much time, but. Um, and you, you gave them so much importance and you always cried about, oh, I have no time for myself. And now, of course, they ignore me completely. They're just not, you know, if I go into their room, it's just like, why are you here? <laughs> and close, close the door as quickly as you can, please. Um, and the only, you know, most of the time the conversation is only about the bare minimums. But at the same time, you know, I do listen to them a lot. I try and understand what music they, they're, they're listening to or what they're reading. And what worries me is, I mean, I'm lucky enough to have two very bright, very, you know, uh, boys who are very much em- empathetic with the world. Uh, one is very much into spirituality, books, been reading a lot about that. Another one is very much into being an anarchist, uh, you know, and, and thinking the world, the system is broken and we have to, you know, build it from scratch and very much thinking that way. But what does worry me is that I would love for them to, it's good to have that angst uh, of of that age and to understand how broken the world is. But I I worry about them not, not missing the opportunity that we as human beings are the most empowered we've ever been to make change happen. So if we just only focus on the futileness or the horribleness of the world, we will miss the chance to change the direction, the course, uh, the power that we have. It's the first time I would say that there's not only just a few hands that are guiding the boat. Uh, Most of us can actually, in a tiny way, but we have a hand that guide, could guide the boat because of social media, because of our access to information, because of the fact that we can get ourselves heard. You look at that 13-year-old girl, now she's 17, Greta Thunberg and what she was able to do, just herself out of a little town. For me, I'm hoping that the young people or just even the older people, all of us, don't get pulled in with all the negativities and give up. Because we have so much information, we get all the bad news and it's sometimes exhausting to be, bro- you know, all the news that comes at you. And especially now, this era that we're living, this is so just out of this planet. There's no, you know, I think there's no example that could even, with nothing to go back to in time. Um, but this would be hopefully that we will realize that, yes, it's true, that it's really dark. Yes, it's true, that it's really uncertain. But that, yes, it's also true that we can make the change.
0: You mentioned earlier that you launched the Who Made My Clothes hashtag um, back when the Rana Plaza, Mm -hmm. well, before the Rana Plaza incident happened. And then it took off uh, when the unfortunate incident occurred. Mm -hmm. Um, If you had to ascribe a hashtag to the current moment, Covid or post-Covid, what would it be? Oh, well,
1: that's a hard one because I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, because uh, I, I think it's it's about, and, and I'm going to say something really corny, but I really do believe in it right now. Um, and it's, I think it's be the change. Um, I think we've never been more, you know. I think Gandhi has never been more relevant than in the times that we're living, we have been shown, you know, a, a, an experiment on global level has happened. And we have been shown that the world can stop, uh, that we have had the capability of stopping everything. And maybe that would make us believe that even though in some You know, some industries, we've gone down a way that then we're told we can't go back or we can't stop. This is a perfect example of, yes, we can. We can stop. Um, I think that and and to be kind to me, those are the two things, and they both come from the Mahatma. Um, You know, it is really, really important right now to be the change and to do unto others what we want them to do unto us, because we're all linked, we're all part of this symbiotic beautiful place, this planet, this blue dot, um, and this world, and there's really no other place that we can go to, and it is so clear to us, I think, there's no one who can deny that everything affects us and we affect everything else, so we need to take on personal responsibility. I think it's the moment of that, it's the moment of what Gandhi said, you have to you know, you have to make sure that you're there for the fight because we're not only fighting for ourselves, we're fighting for humanity, we're fighting for the future. It's going to be so easy with, with the crisis that's gonna come on, the financial crisis, we're going to get gaslit, we're going to get pushed and we're going to be convinced to do things that are going to be uh, against what we should be doing. And that is the reason why we have to as individuals you know, tap into that power and say, no, I'm not buying that back. No, I'm willing to go through hardship for a bit, just like, you know, my grandfather's generation, even though they were, you know, educated universities, learned how to to weave on the charka, learned how to make the yarn, uh, which seemed like a futile, useless task at that moment. You know, many people laughed at it, but did it because it was an act of disobedience with the system to make sure we built a new one. We have to do that. This is our time. It's our moment. And it's very important that we do that.
0: And that's a wrap. I hope you found Kavita's words as thought-provoking and inspiring as I did. I was particularly struck by how she's rooted in heritage craft and artisan communities, yet harnesses technology to realize her vision tradition and innovation coming together to pave the way forward and hopefully to change the system for the better. Please check out the IOU project and learn more about Kavita at www.iou.cc and please share your questions and comments with me via email at at rachna.okpapthak.com We'll talk again next week.